2019, Facebook launches DM. Uh, actually, they, they launched Libra. Libra was the first name. And the idea was, okay, it's going to be a cryptocurrency, Facebook's own cryptocurrency. All two, three billion people are going to be able to use it. That got stopped by the regulators. Fast forward to like 2020, 2021, they created this kind of like DM association, which included a lot of companies, but it was really controlled by Facebook. And the idea is they're going to create like a stable coin and it's going to be backed by USD. And then they're going to have a wallet called Novi and it's going to be like a crypto wallet. And this was supposed to launch late 2021 and it was on track to launch. But now we find out that the Fed basically went to the bank that Facebook was going to use Silvergate Capital and said, Mm -hmm. if you continue to enable this, we're going to come down hard on you. And so basically the whole thing fell apart. The founding team left. And now, like literally months after Facebook changes their name to Meta, they don't have like a crypto project. <laughs> um, interesting. I think first, first, re- so the crypto wallet they were initially making would support like all types of coins, right? Like it wasn't specific to their, the, the DM or whatever they were creating, right? Right. So it would, they, it would have its own naval stable coin, native stable coin, but it would do other things too. And they were mainly pushing this out as, because this, this is before Meta, right? So they were mainly pushing this out as like a, a better way to do transactions on their platform. Because I know their transactions product has kind of been on and off in Messenger. Like how, how were they positioning this outside of just like catching on to the crypto wave and, and building a product there? Well, I think, I think Mark Zuckerberg, you know, say what you will, but I think he's one of the most, I think he's one of the smartest people in the world. And I think he understands that the virtual reality world is going to need digital currencies. And so I think this Mm -hmm. was all part of the vision, right? Um, And I think specifically, you know, you have billions of people across Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook, and what, and, uh, and whatever, and and messenger. And you want to be able to connect all of those apps together. Cause we know that Instagram is going to become a shopping app. We know Mm -hmm. that you want to be able to send money through WhatsApp and then you need like a digital currency for like Oculus in the metaverse. So I think that's what they want. They wanted the glue for all this stuff. Mm. Just interesting that they, I could see them building the wallet and platform to facilitate payments via Bitcoin and whatever types of coin. Interesting that their impulse was to create their own and like go through with that. But continue, continue. To your point, this is exactly what Balaji said. He's like, Facebook fucked up. And they tried to create their own thing. And that scared all of the regulators in the nation Mm -hmm. states when what they could have done is just built Bitcoin and Ethereum into WhatsApp and then created like a wallet to compete with MetaMask and Trust Wallet. They should have done that instead of building their own thing. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think that because I'm even thinking about like uh, Twitter's foray into tipping and whatnot. And their their first initial thing was we will support Bitcoin. We will support crypto in terms of those transactions. And it wasn't like we were going to go and build our own coin for that. And WhatsApp would be massive. I mean, you think of all these countries that you have small marketplaces on WhatsApp. You have all these vendors doing it. Being able to support that sort of payment would be very, very big. That's Yeah, especially because wow. they already have the built-in user base. Like to your point... A lot of these places, they need digital currencies because they don't have access to like credit cards and banks, but they have access to WhatsApp through their phone and their internet connection. If you just put Bitcoin and Ethereum right in there, you already have an addressable market. 100%. 100%. 
What were the Fed's like specific concerns though when they were shutting this shit down? Well, I think from the beginning, there was kind of like a consensus to not let Facebook do this because to be honest, the 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 US government is afraid of Facebook. They have so mm-hmm. much power and they're so big. If this really, really worked, I think that this could have been a true threat to like the US dollar hegemony. And this was the point that I wanted to make around like Bitcoin, because like what like I think the biggest threat to Bitcoin was potentially something like Facebook, because if Facebook could have created like a real global digital currency, they already have 3 billion people who know what Hmm. Facebook is. It would have been really easy for them to get that adoption and create those use cases. The thing about Bitcoin though, that the U S is going to struggle with is they no longer have a throat to choke, right? Like they could go after Mark Zuckerberg and ask him to come speak in front of Congress but there's no CEO of Bitcoin to to come answer questions. Mm -hmm. That's the thought that's going in my, I I think that's like a really interesting thing. I think there's also an interesting thing about what lends currencies credibility. Like you think of the USD government lends it credibility. You think of Bitcoin and in my head, there's no, like the entity is the ability to mine. The entity is it being decentralized, whatnot. You think of Facebook lending a coin credibility and that is like the last company on my list of companies that I'd be comfortable (laughs) being able to, to use and having confidence in my thing. So yeah. Yeah, it's I yeah, I, I wonder I wonder who's going to make the next attempt. Like which private com- or one of these companies will go out and make the next attempt to create one of these currencies. Yeah, I think you know, the CEO of Plaid, he actually refers to um the stock options that are granted within companies as currencies. Like he refers to them as like internal oh. currencies. Huh. I which I think is really interesting. Um I think that the way this will play out is uh, a lot of companies might turn their equity into something like an NFT or like a uh, or a digital currency, um, and it'll it'll serve the same function, but it'll be meant to stay within that ecosystem, right? Like it's it's only for uh, like investing in the company or kind of contributing or uh, being a part of the growth of the company. It's not going to be used to like purchase things, if that makes sense. And the advantage, the advantage over an RSU or equity grant would be what exactly? You don't have to rely on things like Carta. Carta is. I don't know what <laughs> like, Carta is. Oh, oh. So Carta is an app where that all basically all the fintech companies use to manage the giving equity to uh, okay. their employees. And you sign up with your personal email. So even after you potentially leave the company, you can still access it. But if you could get that in the form of like a digital wallet and you could hold it there and then you could still have all of the vesting conditions, but you wouldn't have this centralized database of Carta that has like the entire um, basically mm. Excel sheet of like who owns what. It would just be more open and more decentralized. Mm, mm. And that's uh, that sounds similar to what like the ICOs were like two, three years ago, like these companies having those, those offerings and early employees having coins out of this company. Yeah. The ICOs were interesting and similar to our conversation about NFTs last time, you know, anyone can create an NFT, anyone can create a currency, but most of them won't be worthwhile. I do actually Mm -hmm. think this is an interesting use case though, like companies leveraging NFTs or currencies, whatever you want to call them, like 
similar to securities uh, to make it easier for their employees to basically share and trade equity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, like you said, taking out that the Carta, whatever middleman and all the kind of regulatory bodies that dictate how you could use RSUs and whatnot is makes a lot more sense for the all kind of the stakeholders there. So we'll see. I don't think anyone's going to try something like what Facebook did. I think the closest alternative will be these stable coin companies, you know, like Circle, Tether, mm. etc. Um, the way I see that potentially playing out is either... The U.S. says, hey, Circle, you can be uh, an FDI-insured bank, and we're going to allow you to issue these stable coins. Or, and or someone like J.P. Morgan Chase gets the go-ahead to create their own stable USD coin, and uh, it happens that way. Yeah, yeah. And where did the, I, I'm blanking, the person who was brought in to head this initiative at Facebook, where was he coming from? I, I feel like he had like a really big, people were very excited when he joined the project and the fact that he stepped down was a major bust when it kind of fell apart. Yeah, I'm not sure what his name is and I don't know where he came from, but I remember when I was reading articles about this news, it said that he left like a few months before this whole thing fell apart. Uh, yep. which says a lot, right? Like when the founding team just kind of doesn't believe in it anymore, then you know it's over. And it's probably because they understood that there was just too much regulatory uh, red tape for this to be worth it. And they want to go work on something else. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. Cool. Let's talk about Fauci. <laughs> This is wild to me. So I, I want to preface this by saying that there are a lot of wormholes here. There are a lot of like directions and evidence and things that are popping up. It's also very interesting to me that one of the publications diving into this is BuzzFeed that, that broke out a lot of the information that came from here. But hopefully I could walk through this in a way that makes a bit of sense. Um, this I actually learned about this while I was visiting my friend uh, on like 42nd. I was walking to my friend and I was listening to the All In podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. And David Sachs, who I normally, I like my ears kind of, I, 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 I'm just not a, I don't love David Sachs. I feel like outside of his views, I feel like the way he argues things is just not conducive to a proper conversation, but whatever. Um, but he brought up this con, this like topic, right? And at first I thought this was like a whatever controversy, some kind of random conspiracy. But the more he started talking, the more it, it opened my eyes. So essentially there are like three main players here, right? There's Fauci and the NIH. There's this organization called the Eco Health Alliance, um, which makes funding decisions with labs. They're a research organization. They do some virology. They, they do various things that they're involved with. And then there's the Wuhan Institute of Virology, right? Um, so there is this concept of a gain-of-function virus. Now, this virus, which on the all-in pad, uh, David Sachs referred to as a super virus, but I, I want to read kind of like what this actually means, right? So a gain-of-function virus involves scientists creating these novel genotypes and then screening and selecting for a certain phenotype. So it's essentially scientists optimizing a virus a certain way to be able to express something or complete a function, right? So it's kind of like playing designer babies with, with viruses, right? And in different labs, they are interested in these viruses because they could manufacture one of these viruses and then understand ways to like solve for that virus, right? So you create one of these future viruses that you kind of can predict, and then you find ways to combat them. And this is seen as a, a an act in preparing 
for or bracing yourself for a virus, right? So like that that part kind of it sounds very risky, but like generally that that kind of makes sense, right? So, <laughs> is, are, are we? Get, is this is this a Wuhan lab leery thing? Is that where we're going? <laughs> I let's let's go slowly. So, there, <laughs> um, so the, this this idea is not a new idea, but it's a very risky idea. And the U.S. or the NIH itself has kind of been in and out on how they supported doing this sort of research. So, I think actually in 2014 they paused this sort of research because they wanted to make a more rigorous framework. Um, they ended up naming it the Potential Pandemic Pathogen Care and Oversight Framework to be able to know when are we going to do these gain-of-function viruses? Are we going to support this research? How can we make it safe? Like, they wanted some frameworks there to dictate it. Because, I mean, you, you think of labs creating new viruses that could be potent um, as, as very dangerous, right? So this is kind of like a little bit of background there. So apparently what, what was seen when a lot of emails came out um, under the, the Freedom of Information Act was that there, the NIH, um, or I guess two different parts of it, the NIH gave money to EcoHealth Alliance in order to do research into these gain-of-function viruses, and EcoHealth Alliance put money into the Wuhan Institute of Virology to do this sort of research, right? Ooh, the plot thickens. Oh, <laughs> ah. Um, and the person at EcoHealth Alliance uh, who kind of heads these developments is called Dr. Peter Dazak. Right. So um, there was an email that was made public uh, that was between Peter and Fauci. Right. And this email essentially said, and I want to get the the exact email up or I want to get the facts up. But this is this is what this person at EcoHealth Alliance wrote to Fauci said, I just wanted to say a personal thank you on behalf of our staff and collaborators for publicly standing up and stating that the scientific evidence supports a natural origin for COVID-19 from a bat to human spillover, not a lab release from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So essentially what happened here was that Fauci received information from a panel of scientists that were like, we have reason to believe that this virus originated from a, a lab. There are markers in the virus that are kind of indicative that this might have been manufactured or work, worked in a lab. Um, Fauci received this email, and there's evidence that he received this email. And then a few days after, he came out publicly, and he essentially said that the idea that coronavirus came from a lab is preposterous. It's like a conspiracy theory. There's no way it could have came from a lab. Um, and he believes that it came from a bat or some sort of animal, right? Um, so the fact that he received that information, that's the output that came out. And then there was this email that was written between EcoHealth Alliance and Fauci that said they, they were thanking him that he kind of said that it was uh, animal-born and not institute-born is, is very, very interesting. So I guess I'm going to pause there for a second just to get if the dots are making sense or any thoughts you have. Well, there. so you haven't connected them for me because you spent a lot of time talking about like designer viruses. In the fact that this is a thing, why is it obvious to Fauci that this didn't come from the Wuhan lab? If if such if such a strategy is something that you know nation states are doing, sure. So the I want to uh, okay. So one one more piece of the puzzle there. So on October twenty second, twenty twenty one, Fauci actually admitted that 
at Eco Health Alliance, they were putting money into labs that dealt with uh, enhancing bat coronaviruses. So there was a he admitted that there was a direct link between this Eco Health Alliance putting money into labs that kind of did these uh, gain of function viruses with bat coronaviruses. Um, and that he was familiar that this is something that the NIH was putting money into and that he was actually a proponent of doing. Now, in addition to this, the NIH claimed that they didn't know everything that was happening at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but they did know that gain-of-function research was happening at the Institute. So there is no direct tie that puts Fauci understanding that like the money would be going into this sort of research that could lead to something like Corona. But there are a lot of pieces that show that information was familiar and Fauci was kind of um, putting, putting money into the thing. The thing that I find it found interesting here is the reason that even though Fauci had information that could suggest that this virus um, came out of a lab, there was an immediate push that he put out on with his media teams to say that it came from a, an, an animal or it did not look like it came from an institute. So at like a high level, right? Yeah. Do you think that that decision was political? I purely think that this decision was political. Um, I think that... I think that there... The in, in the information that I was looking through, there were a lot of markers and Fauci discussed in emails back and forth that there were a lot of things that could have placed this virus coming out of an institute. And I believe the decision to make it sound like there was a lack of information about this or generally saying it could have come from an animal was a political decision that was made um, to kind of negate a lot of the blowback that would happen at that time. So I, I, I personally do think it was political. Interesting. Okay. I was like, where is this going? Like, where does Justin <laughs> fall on this spectrum? So like, do you think based on the research you've done, are we any closer to figuring this out or, or is it always going to be like a belief thing? Right. Cause there seems to be like a lot of persuasive evidence that this could have come from a lab. Like I, you know, I think about that, uh, uh, when, when John Stewart went on Stephen Colbert and he's like, I don't know, the COVID-19 Wuhan lab, COVID started in Wuhan, maybe there's a connection, you know? Uh, and what's really interesting is like in 2020, because you had uh, this rising, rising like anti-Asian sentiment, like I understand the political necessity to not make it seem like this happened on purpose or that this came from China in like a purposeful way. But then as time went on, after Trump was out of office, you saw more people who weren't just like far right conspiracy theorists talking about like, oh, maybe this is real. And then you mm -hmm. fast forward to present day. Like, what's your take? Do you think we're ever going to know? I think that not saying that we do know, but I, I think that there's overwhelming evidence about the source of this sort of virus. And I think there's overwhelming kind of research that was going into this sort of thing. I, I think that due to the nature, the, the kind of political nature of what's happening here, that there will never be an announcement that directly sets that origin or, or kind of connects the dots there. But I even know, and it's funny that BuzzFeed is the source of this, but there was a <laughs> quote in one of the uh, the BuzzFeed articles that said, 
I, I think this was hours later that Fauci received. Uh, uh, let me let me read the entire thing because I think it's relevant here. Um, so. On January 31st, Dr. Anderson, a noted virologist out of the Scripps lab, privately told Fauci that after discussion with his colleagues, some of COVID-19's features looked possibly engineered, and the genome is inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory, right, that it came straight from the animal. And then hours later, Fauci hastily organized a call with dozens of worldwide virologists, and there are notes from this meeting that say they obtained the special report that revealed that suspicions of the lab leak theory were suppressed pressed over concerns of how the public would react to news of possible Chinese government involvement, right? So I think the, the, the like main thing going through my head is I think we do, they, they probably do know, and I think we have overwhelming evidence there, but I, I never, never anticipated coming out kind of black and white about sources or about attribution. This is interesting, man. Like, as you were saying that, the thought that was in my mind, like, you know, we talked about Russia, Ukraine last week or two weeks ago. And I also mentioned that like China, Taiwan is going to be kind of like another area of this, you know, as time goes on, if more evidence comes out that it's more likely that this came from the Wuhan lab than not. And then we find out that it was suppressed. Like the Mm -hmm. reaction to that will be, you know, five X worse than whatever they thought was going to happen. If that happened in 2020. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's why this shot, I was literally walking and I stopped. I like stopped in my steps because I'm like, why are people not discussing this? I mean, this this is a huge story, right? If there's evidence of, of that information. Also, obviously, Fauci and the U.S. government not being transparent with all of this. So, I, I mean, I would recommend everyone listening to do their own kind of looking into this a bit because if you just look up Eco Health Alliance and look at the NIH's connections, we definitely have been doing a lot of research in this in this space. Damn, this pod just took a rightward turn. Look at that. <laughs> Let me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take it back on like a leftward turn. Let's talk about. Uh, let's talk about the deficit myth. Okay. So let's hit it. Um. Some some basic economics out of the deficit myth, right? In in. I just want to say I went into this book very very skeptical, like a hardcore Bitcoiner, just ready mm. to tear it apart why it was wrong. But it's actually changed the way I think about a lot of things, right? So. The core premise is that the U.S. government is not a household, right? And what that means is that the U.S. government does not need to budget the way that you and I need to budget. When when you and I have a budget deficit, when we're in debt, we need to pay that back at some point and we need to do something in order to earn the money to pay that back. The U.S. does not have that same problem because the U.S. is the issuer of its own currency. What that means is that literally at any time, the U.S. can create as much money as it needs to, to pay for whatever it needs to pay for. And I want to be very specific about how this works because I did not understand this at all. So like, for instance, let's, let's talk about like the U.S. being in debt with China, right? Okay. When, when someone says that, what you might think is that the U.S. needed money to do something. And then they went to China and they said, hey, can we have some money? And China gave them a loan. That is not what happened or what that means. What it means is that the US and China trade with each other and we're in a trade deficit with China. So they send us more stuff than we send them. Because we're in a trade deficit, they're making money from trading with us. 
and they hold that money in the form of US dollars, right? So after trading, they have more US dollars. When we say that China, when we say that we're in debt to China, what China does with their US dollars, instead of holding them in the form of dollars, like a checking account, they hold them as US treasuries, like a savings account, so they can earn interest on them, right? So the US government actually gives you the option to take US dollars and transform them into US treasuries, which are bonds or debt, mm -hmm. the same way that mm -hmm. you or I could take $100 and buy a US treasury bond. Okay, the reason that's important is because literally if we wanted to pay off the debt to China, literally all we would have to do is go to the New York Federal Reserve Bank and just update the balance on China's bank account saying that, okay, instead of you having this much in your savings, you now have this much in your checking and now the debt is paid off. Like I just wanted to illustrate how literally all of this is just about updating bank balances at the Federal Reserve. That is how the deficit in money works. What? I Wow. Okay. I did not know that. Did not know that at all. Yeah. Maybe like, tell me what you're thinking so I can hopefully make it more clear because maybe that wasn't clear. No, I, I think that was clear. I guess the next part of the puzzle that you're going to dive into is like why it is good that we have this, like why we don't just make that action to kind of rectify that balance there. Because um, I like, like you said in the beginning, I really thought it was like a loan type relationship. I wasn't familiar with the bonds. Yeah. So the, the key point here is that the US doesn't need to borrow money from anyone ever, not citizens and not other countries for two reasons. One, we're a currency issuer. But more importantly than that, we have a unique privilege that the US is the global reserve currency. So what that means is we can always use dollars to buy things. That is not a privilege that most countries have, right? Like Nigeria, their currency is the Naira, right? They can print as much Naira as they want, but that doesn't mean that Sweden is going to accept Naira in exchange for something. So what Nigeria has to do is they have to earn something like US dollars in order to be able to trade with a country like Sweden, right? So we have this crazy privilege where we can just print all of the money that we need to do anything and people will always accept it because it's the US, because it's the global reserve currency. How... Okay. Is there one global reserve currency or like euros treated the same way? Like how many currencies are able to have these privileges? Basically, uh, the US, um, the European Union, the UK, and Australia. But the US is the dominant global reserve currency. Like 90% of trade happens in dollars. So the US has more of a privilege than anybody else. The reason I wanted okay. to bring this up is because the whole point of the book is this concept that we need to worry about deficits doesn't make any sense, right? Like if uh, when we were talking about the infrastructure bill, you, you hear a lot of uh, conversation in Congress about like, how are we going to pay for it? And she makes two really good points with this book. The first is that when we're talking about spending money on um, defense spending, no one ever asks how we're going to pay for it. Because we know mm -hmm. how we're going to pay for it. We're going to uh, buy a bunch of shit from Boeing and we're going to increase the balance on Boeing's bank account at the Fed. That's how we pay for things for defense spending, right? But the, the more crucial point is we need to be talking about like, what are we going to be spending money on 
we don't need to worry about the deficit. The only reason we need to worry about the deficit is if it causes inflation. So the core tenet of the book is there's nothing wrong with being in a deficit. The only problem is, are you spending too much to cause inflation? Hmm. Okay. That, yeah, that, I mean, that was like the only thing in my head. Cause I, I guess like kind of learning this and going through it, I was like, so why are there any, why is there any ever a discussion on our spending? Why is there ever a discussion on these bills and kind of the, the money we're putting in various things? Um, the, the next logical question, I don't know if it makes sense to have it here is like, at what point do things start to infect, affect inflation? Especially now, this is like one of the main things people talk about, like the, the high rates of inflation we have now. But, uh, yeah, that's super, super interesting. Well, and so that's the perfect question, right? So this is where I think the book starts to go wrong because a lot of MMT, so modern monetary theory, that's the theory we're talking about. A lot of these economists, including the author, they will say that the current inflation that we saw in 2021 and in 2022 is 100% due to COVID and it has nothing monetary huh. as a part of it at all. I okay, this is like stipends? Like the fact um, that we were sending money to people's houses is the reason and businesses, right? PPE loan, whatever. Like that is the reason that inflation. Happens. Well, so there's, there's a couple angles to this, right? So there's two ways that the government prints money. There's fiscal and monetary. So fiscal is what you just talked about. The cares act where the government literally set $1,400 checks to individual people. There's mm. another way to print money though. And this is what the fed usually does. Basically, the Fed wants to get money into the economy, so they update the bank balances at all of the major banks, right? So the way that you and I have a bank at, like, let's say, Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo has a bank account at the Fed, and the Fed can literally just increase Wells Fargo's balance, and they do that so that Wells Fargo now has more money to loan out mm. to people, usually okay. rich people and businesses. So when that happens, usually those rich people and businesses they take that money and they invest it in things like assets and crypto and mm -hmm. houses. So that's why I think we see all of this asset inflation. Um, and the reason I don't totally agree with MMT is that sure, COVID probably explains why the price of meat or gas has gone up because of supply shock related things. But the cost of housing is going up like 25% year over year. That's not because of COVID. That's because there's all this money that's being yeah. funneled into investments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes yeah that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. One of the one of the uh, basically not predictions, but like recommendations of this book is like we should totally just pay off student debt by hmm. printing money for it, and I. I'm 100% on board. Like, I think that's a great idea because we can pay for it. Um, the only thing that we have to do, and this is a really interesting point also. So when people think about like taxes, most people think that the government needs to tax us in order to have money to spend. But this book has you look at it a different way. The government doesn't need your money. They can print as much as they need. The reason they tax us, the reason they sell bonds is because they want to take money out of the economy to balance whatever money they put into the economy. And the motivation for that is still only inflation. Like that is the right. thing that they're accounting for. Right. The only, the only limit 
to government spending is inflation. They don't want things to run so hot that prices go up. Mm-hmm. And they can't account for that simply with like interest rates or like that sort of they it, can. It would be interest. Yeah. Yeah. The way that the Fed controls interest rates is by selling government bonds. Ah, okay. Got it. <laughs> Got it. This shit is so complex and confusing. <laughs> I want to read this book now. I did not know. It, it makes like it makes a lot of intuitive sense that at the the Wells Fargo bank account is just raised and there's not because I, I I did not like think about those things, but it makes a lot of sense there. So then what so go back to like your main takeaways or your disagreements with this book. Oh yeah, disagreements. I'm glad you brought them up. <laughs> so there's one, the inflation piece. The second piece is that. Um, so, so MMT, it models the economy as like a tank of water, right? So like you have a tank of water, if you put some in, you need to drain some so that it doesn't overflow, right? That's the core thesis, but what the, what the, um, what MMT doesn't really think about, and this is something that I'm still trying to figure out is like, what happens if the U S loses its monetary sovereignty? which could happen which, which means case. what exactly so the us could lose its monetary sovereignty in a few ways number 1 let's say that there was something else that became the global reserve currency and the us could no longer pay for everything with dollars like let's say something like bitcoin became the global reserve currency and the only way that the us could buy things is with bitcoin so we would have to buy bitcoin first and then use that we can't print Bitcoin, right? So you lose monetary sovereignty. Number two, if the US were to, let's say, lose a war and have to pay like repatriations the way that Germany did after Germany, World War I yeah. Yeah. in another country's currency, this is what people don't talk about. The reason there was hyperinflation in Weimar Germany is because they had to pay the debt in a currency that they could not issue, right? Mm. So if the U.S. had to pay a debt in a currency that it could not issue, that could lead to a problem. So I think fundamentally what MMT ignores is like what's going on in the world. It assumes that the U.S. will always be this dominant global reserve currency power and that it could never lose a war. And I think that both of those things are untrue and could unfold this decade. Wow. Wow. You were, you just, you're dropping a lot right now. I, (laughs) oh God, I struggle with that. I, especially this decade, I really struggle with the idea that those two things could be, I mean, I I don't see us uh, sure if there's a conflict that happens and we don't, I just don't see us having to issue anything in currency that's not ours. Right. And then I also don't see Bitcoin having that sort of traction in the next 10 years where it will be looked at as a global, like the government powers that be will not allow that to happen, which is why I can't see that happening in 10 years within 10 years. Well, to, to your point, maybe I'm thinking too, uh, early. I definitely think that those things can happen between let's say now and 2040, Like it Mm. it is pretty clear to me and it is part of my worldview that we are living through the fall of uh, the U.S. empire. Whether that happens between now and 2030 or 2040 is hard to say, but I think that is very clearly happening. And is there – so the second point, like the the war issuing that, sure, putting that to the side, for Bitcoin to become a global – 
like that that global currency, the global tender, governments themselves would have to like change the way they regulate it or like kind of pull back regulations that allows for it to get the traction needed to be a global thing. I mean, do you, how do you see that happening? Do you do you see the government not having a choice but to allow Bitcoin to become that big? Like if you think by 2040 this will happen, what are the what are the levers that are pulled in order for that sort of thing to happen? Well, so I think I think it's it's a domino effect, right? Like today, if you want to trade with another country, you need to earn dollars. That's how countries trade with each other. Once countries start accepting Bitcoin in terms of like trade payments, now countries start thinking about, okay, we need to have dollar reserves and we need to have Bitcoin reserves. And I think what ends up happening is that nation states start mining Bitcoin to earn Bitcoin that they can either keep in their reserves to back their local currency or use to trade amongst each other. The one thing that I don't think people recognize is that most countries despise the privilege that the U.S. has because of our global reserve mm. currency status. And there's mm. never actually been a viable alternative because the reason that the U.S. dollar is so strong is because the U.S. military is so strong. Not only is it a great trading medium of exchange, but the U.S. Navy literally protects trade routes so that ships can get from one place to another. Um, there's never been a viable alternative that was at, as strong as the US itself. And I feel like Bitcoin is potentially that alternative. So over the course of time, you just have one domino after another because people do want an alternative to the US dollar, meaning other nation states. Hmm. Hmm. That makes sense. I, I think the thing I'm struggling with is the portions of the pie. Like if you take the the countries that want this to happen and then you compare it to the China and the US of the world and, and the amount of power that the kind of small, like the amount of aggregation that would have to happen to tip the scales in that, that thing is I think the, the issue my mind is going through right now. But it makes yeah, a lot of sense. I think it, I think it, uh, it happens slowly and then all at once, mm, right? Mm. Some, like there's some things. type of event that we can't predict, but it's like every year, you know, maybe you have El Salvador at some point, mm -hmm. I think in 2022, some other country will, will get on Bitcoin 2023, another one and slowly, slowly, slowly. And then something happens and then, and then it's everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's so wild that the dude from El Salvador, the, the president or whatever is just like on Twitter, like joining the, the Bitcoin memes and all the crypto stuff. <laughs> like I, I love seeing their personalities come through. Well, and that's the thing, right? Him and the mayor of Miami Suarez. and the mayor of New York, like yep. being like tech is eating everything, right? Meaning that the best government officials operate like startup CEOs. Yeah. And they think about their job as being a government service provider, the yep. way that tech companies provide services which is very exciting like i personally find <laughs> that very exciting i agree that's why i'm thinking about moving <laughs> to miami we'll both be no I'm not, I'm not going to miami i have no interest in going there but that's that's hype man that's very, very hype all right let's talk about substack and spotify let's 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 do it let's do it um 
I actually am really interested to, to see your thoughts here and, and how you view this. So the, the kind of TLDR of it is that Neil Young, right? Neil Young, super famous artist, Grammys, two times in the Rock Hall of Fame, um, really, really big artist. Essentially, he came out last week and he wrote a letter um, to kind of Spotify his label, et cetera. And it said that he does not want to share the Spotify platform with Joe Rogan. Um, and he would like his uh, all of his music, his entire catalog to be removed from Spotify because he does not want to be in a platform that supports spreading fake information about vaccines and potentially causing death to those who believe the disinformation spread by them. So this happened. He put out kind of this, this letter out there into the ether um, that said he wanted his music pulled and his all of his music was taken down um, as the obviously, I mean, Spotify has signed this very large contract with Joe Rogan and they're supporting him and whatnot. So this this happened and this was pretty interesting to me. I mean, you know, right? The, the Joe Rogan podcast is huge. It's the biggest podcast in the world. Um, apparently it gets around 11 million listeners per episode. And in the past few months, there has been a lot of information he has been spreading. Um, whereas it's like, very passionately discouraging vaccination in younger people and children, claiming that mRNA vaccines are gene therapy, promoting, promoting ivermectin, um, a bunch of just random conspiracy theories about the vaccines. I think he had one guest that came on that said that the shot itself, the vaccine shot, was causing a disease and could cause you to die almost like instantaneously. So Joe Rogan has been spreading a lot of this really negative information. And I find it curious that Spotify is not treating this this more seriously because the, the kind of the thought process that Spotify has gone through right now is they're going for the same platform concept right of the Facebooks and Twitters of the world right they give a tool to people they give a platform to people and people use this how they 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 see fit and they are not responsible for the information that permeates on on the platform right and Spotify themselves claim that they went through all of Joe Rogan's, every single Joe Rogan episode, and they found that nothing that he said was kind of went uh, went against the Spotify guidelines that they had. So that is kind of, that's, and I can, I'll talk about Substack in a second, but that's the Spotify part there. And my issue here is that before a lot of these platforms would, would hide behind the, like, we're just a tool, we're just a platform, right? The same thing where people bring up uh, your phone service and it's like, we provide a service, the phone service. We can't, we don't, aren't responsible for what we talk to when we're on the phone. And I, I think specifically for Spotify, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me because Spotify has this very large lucrative contract with Joe Rogan. Um, essentially Joe Rogan is a Spotify employee and it, really, really confuses me when a company like that tries to wiggle out of getting any responsibility for sharing all this information with a huge swath of people, right? And promoting his podcast on on their platform. So that's that's the way I see that. I'm curious what you think about this. Do you think it's just private companies do whatever they like and have no responsibility there? Or there should be more discussion around what Spotify is doing here? I don't know. I think, you know, this conversation has been had over and over again with Facebook, with Twitter, mm -hmm. and now it's with Spotify, which, by the way, is interesting because Spotify has historically never been considered on that kind of level in terms of like a, a content publishing platform. So I think that's its own point. But mm -hmm. 
fundamentally, I don't think there's any way to solve this issue without like crypto, not to come right back to this, <laughs> but like, like the, the world, look, look, cause here's the thing. I actually agree to a certain extent with what Joe Rogan is saying here. Like, I don't think 23 year olds have to get vaccinated. I also don't think that 23 year olds, if they choose to get vaccinated are going to have any negative effects from that either. Like my fundamental perspective on this is like your health is determined by the things that you do every single day, not for the week that you had COVID or the time that you just got a vaccine shot. Speaking as someone who got a booster shot literally three days ago. Um, Mm. So I just want to say that I think it is important for someone to be able to access Joe Rogan's content, right? But it puts someone like Spotify in this crazy position where when you have something that is so crucial and so important, they have to make their own subjective call on whether or not this is appropriate to be distributed to 200 million people. I think the only solution to this kind of problem is you need decentralized public blockchains where people can put up information and other people can either pay for to see it or um, maybe they don't have to pay to see it. But there can't be a third party publishing publisher because that publisher can either censor or they just get into these, you know, we just keep getting into these arguments of like, should you take it down or shouldn't you? Right. Like fundamentally, the Internet is going to be open and free. Like people need to be able to access the information they want to see. Uh, OK. OK. Well, just a quick thing to like the the 20 and under the the younger people. There was this letter put together by uh, 250 virologists and scientists that kind of refuted every individual Joe Rogan point that he's made there. And one of their <laughs> points was that like unvaccinated 12 to 34 year olds are 12 times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID than those who are, who are fully vaccinated. So the idea that it's completely safe and there's, there are no things there. I don't know if that's the, the correct idea there. I, I just, I struggle. I agree with you that people will be able to act, should be able to access the information. The information should be out there. I find it confusing when the algorithms that dictate social media or the way that Spotify kind of promotes their podcasts um, allow for people to access this information easier than information that has been maybe not vetted by a third party, but you think of like how research works and it's peer reviewed and there's certain like bounds that allow you to spread information. I, I just, I think the ease of access is like kind of the point there and not necessarily if information can be accessed as, as a whole, right? Because nothing is, I mean, people, it's like the, the acquisition funnel, right? It's the way people learn about these things and all these platforms kind of control that acquisition funnel. And I think because they control that, they should be responsible for the information they're, they're introducing people into. So I like, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if, I don't know if crypto fixes this, um, but I do think there's a responsibility for these third parties here. I don't agree yeah, in a world crypto. where everything is, yeah. Yeah, crypto doesn't fix this, but it, it it removes the conversation. Because here's the thing, like this conversation, there's no solution to this, mm. right? Like like Spotify can, uh, they can cut Joe Rogan from their programming. And, I, and I'm curious to hear if you think that's what they should have done. They can cut Joe Rogan from their programming, but then they they piss off a segment of people who, who thinks that that's the wrong move. Right. So that, that's why I went to that point where it's just like, Mm. like this conversation, there's no solution to this conversation. It's just, it's just opinion based to, to your other point of like, 
you know, if these social media companies, if these publishing platforms, if they are going to be the funnel through which people learn about things like COVID, should they take on more responsibility? Like, sure, but they're picking a side every time they do, right? Like if, if Spotify decides that what Joe Rogan said is not appropriate, then he has to find another platform to do that. Now, then you start talking about like AWS and Google, what happened yeah. with Parler, because, you know, the layer underneath these social networks is the cloud providers. And mm -hmm. ultimately, the only way I see this playing out is you have to build decentralized alternatives to AWS, to things like Spotify, because here's the thing. There are people who agree with the sentiments that he is putting out there and they want to be able to access that content. And sure. I, for one, uh, th there's, there's a paternalistic element to the left when people say things like, Oh, follow the science, like not, not scientists can disagree on things. Um, those are some of my thoughts. That's it. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense to me, to your initial question about what I think they should have done. I mean, what they did do, what the CEO came out and did was he added a, uh, a content advisory now to every individual Joe Rogan episode. I, I agree with you. I mean, it, it comes down to if they are going to make a decision here, then every subsequent podcast, every podcast on the platform, they would have to make that decision or just the people they're signing these exclusive deals with because they would be considered employees in my, my eyes. I think mm. it is, it's like a very circular, like circular question answer there. And the, Essentially, this this happened with Substack as well, but they had a very much like champion anti censorship and essentially not having any censorship on their platform, um, believing that we will only be able to increase trust when you have access to all types of information and you can make your your own decisions, which is a very interesting way to go about that. Um, there was one study done that looked at Substack and apparently they made like two point five million dollars in revenue last year off of anti vaccine publications, which I, I found pretty interesting. Well, I think, I think this comes down to branding, right? Like eventually you'll have two companies for everything. One mm, that I accepts completely a agree with perspective that. and the other that accepts a different perspective, but even that's not enough. Eventually you just want to be able to have access to every perspective. And that's why I keep coming back to this crypto thing. Like the vaccine stuff is, is interesting. Like, you know, you brought up that point that people who are vaccinated, even if they're young, 12 times more likely, et cetera, et cetera. I do still, um, I guess the sentiment that I'm coming from and, and one that I think Joe Rogan has as well is that your experience with COVID is downstream of your general level of health. Like, and I, and I do believe that's true. I, I think though that you're not allowed to like express that sentiment. Um, because potentially it could be, it could lead people to not get vaccinated. And I do, um, I have, especially in the past year grown a little bit wary of that. Hmm. Um, like I definitely am not one to claim that everyone needs to get vaccinated because I do think these are like personal health hmm. decisions that people need to make. And I think this gets really tricky because it's like, what, like who is Spotify to decide what is and is not appropriate in terms of what can be said about COVID. Yeah. Isn't that wild that the, the music streaming company is making these, these global decisions? Like, isn't that a crazy, well, hey man, crazy like, idea? Again, 
they're they're a plat they're competing with youtube like, yeah. let's 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 just say like that spotify is competing with youtube right and they have done a very good job in my opinion of getting video onto the platform almost all of the podcasts that i listen to gary v all in it's video now and hmm. it's cool um spotify it has been my most used app since i had an iphone right because hmm. music is is such a big thing yep i'm i i think they've done a great job um and they've done so well that now they are a part of this conversation up there with facebook and twitter and youtube in terms of like what gets to be shown yeah yeah i think the last thing I was thinking about here is like how many people start making these decisions, like how many artists come out with their label and say, we are going to remove our content from a platform because we don't believe with the, the company's views, the company's values. And to what point does Spotify start making changes there? Because I mean, in the end, it's a, in, it's a free market, right? Like Spotify competitors could pop up and people who could kind of make those deals and make those other opportunities. There, there are a lot of large players out there who could do a lot of different things. Well, and it's interesting too, because like, it's not, it's not A and B, right? Like, so let's say Neil Young says, okay, Spotify, I'm taking my music off of you. I'm only going to put it on Apple music now. No, it's, it's not, it's not like Apple music doesn't want to be put in the position where they have to take the opposite stance that Spotify takes, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, uh, also I think that most artists, uh, don't have the clout where it makes sense for them to, you know, do something like taking their music off of Spotify to like back a political stance. Um, like I think for most artists that just wouldn't matter for someone like Neil Young, obviously he's big enough that he kind of created this whole uproar and like, you know, uh, Joe Rogan had to go and apologize. Um, but in general, I don't think it's going to be the, the consumers and like the artists that drive this change. I think it's going to be like the, platforms themselves branding themselves based on what they will and not what will and will Hmm. not tolerate Hmm. that's interesting just my last thought here and then we could move on i I just i don't know i I challenge the idea that the artists wouldn't have an impact there especially because there's been a lot of talk about how spotify's the like uh, revenue artists get from Spotify is extremely minuscule, like the amount of yeah. money they make per stream and all that sort of thing. So I could see a lot of artists who make 80% of their money in other deals taking their stuff off of a Spotify just to kind of make that statement. And I could see that happening in aggregate and actually s- significantly lowering the quality of the platform because majority of people, I mean, you, you yourself, most likely they're is a limited amount of artists that you really listen to on Spotify. Like you're not constantly listening to you. You have your people, right? So that the domino effect that could happen there is probably a bit more pronounced than, than we would think. I didn't think about that. That's a very good point. And the real question is like, where do those people go? Do they go to Apple music? Do they go to title or potentially is there a decentralized alternative that allows them to host their own music, make all of the money off of it, but still mm-hmm. there's a way for us to be able to very easily find it. Yeah. Yeah. You sound like biology. Every solution is decentralized. That's, that's, you got, it, it's the only solution because the reason there's no solution to this is because you have one side that says censorship and then there's the other side that says responsibility. There is no, there's no solution to that. It's A or B. The only real solution is um, content lives on an open internet and you can go look at what you want to look at, but no side is going to win. Like you're not going to be able to censor 
things in the long run. And um, yeah, so that's, that's my, my final take, but <laughs> speaking of Joe Rogan, Mies over Coe's guy was that's on not a transition. <laughs> the transitions don't you just love them the <laughs> knees over toes guy just so happened to be on joe rogan two weeks ago and i watched the entire pod um <laughs> the two and a half hours two and a yeah something like that just to give some background like you know when i started watching when i first got into gary v you know the reason i liked him was because he had like a distinct energy and that came across it's the same thing with me for knees over toes guy. He's got like a distinct focused energy that I really vibe with, especially because we have similar stories, right? Like he played basketball growing up and he, you know, he, he was a very hard worker, but he developed a lot of injuries through playing basketball specifically because he was doing a lot of the wrong exercises, but he was doing them so passionately that he like fucked his body up even more. I did something similar where I trained so hard at like soccer and basketball and dance, but because I didn't have like the right information and knowledge to like know what to do and how to use my body, I actually damaged my body worse than if I had done nothing. So I really resonate with that, especially because he's this guy who at 30 years old is like more athletic than he was at 22. And that kind of like, like that story like when I first started getting into him, I'm like, holy shit, like it's not over for me. Like I can actually get to that place that I want to get to and I can stay there for a long time if I'm just doing the right things. So I bought into that story hard. I've been doing knees over toes stuff for like the past four months. I literally joined a gym two weeks ago just so I could do sled drives. <laughs> Which is like the biggest thing that he that he proposes. But you were gonna say well, that something. was my that was my question. Like, can you can you kind of what is this guy? What's his brand? What is he showing? Like, I'd love to understand that a bit more. Yeah, it's a lot of crazy stuff, man. So, like, <laughs> if if I could break it down, um, so like there's there's a couple there's a couple. Uh, let me just go by exercises. I think that would be the most helpful, right? One of the first exercises I actually saw knees over toes guy for the first time on TikTok back when I was on TikTok and uh, he was doing this exercise where he stands up against a wall and then he basically just like lifts his toes off the ground while he's like kind of balancing on his heels. And what he's doing is he's strengthening the tibialis, which is your shin. And the reason this is important is because a lot of people spend time on like calf raises, but they never actually strengthen the other side of the calf. And the reason that's so important for something like basketball or running is because when you decelerate, when you stop, that's all tibialis. And if you have a weak tibialis, that's going to lead to knee injuries. So that's the, that's one big one. The second big one is split squats. So everyone who has a job has really short hip flexors, but it's not just about stretching them out. You need to stretch them out and strengthen them at the same time. So he has the ATG split squat, which is this exercise where you try to get your knee as far over your toe as possible without your back knee touching the ground. So you're stretching and strengthening. Without, wait, wait, without your back knee touching the ground? Yeah, so imagine you're in a lunge, right? And then instead of staying kind of like up where most people do, uh, okay. you push your front knee as far forward as possible, but your back knee has to stay up. What that mm. means is you're still engaging that hip flexor. 
So you're strengthening and stretching at the same time. And this is one of the fundamental concepts where it's like, you need to do both. You can't just focus on stretching. You can't just focus on strength. You need to find movements that allow you to do both so that you actually keep it. I love that. I, I yeah, that that's interesting. I would have never, I mean, obviously I would have never considered my, my shin as something that I had to actively, actively like strengthen and, and have to think about, but why is this guy like, why is this the rage now? Why is he, is it TikTok? Like oh. what, why is this man getting so many, such, so well, much so think about it. Knees over toes guy. The fundamental thesis is that in order to have strong knees, you have to train with your knee over your toe, which traditionally you can go back and look at like fitness textbooks. People always tell you, keep your knees behind your toes. And the reason Mm. they say that is because when your knee goes over your toe, it puts pressure on your knee. But if you never put pressure on your knee, it gets weak. So Mm. his whole thing is like, you need to do as much knees over toes training as you can do without pain. He's really big on this. Never work through pain. Start from the lowest level to the highest level. The lowest level being walking backwards. This is very fun. And I hope I hope you try this one day. Go for a walk, walk backwards. What you'll notice is that every single step you take, your knee is over your toe, but it's not gonna hurt you no matter how much, how little knee pain you have. You start with that and then you can work up to doing what I'm doing, which is I put like four 45 plates on a sled and I pull it backwards. It's fucking Hmm. best workout you'll ever have. I just want to clarify something. You, at the beginning of your journey here, you would go outside in Oakland and just just walk backwards, like just block to block, (laughs) just walk backwards. Dude, there's, you've, you've been here. There's a hill right outside my house. So I started by walking up the hill backwards. Then I started jogging up the hill backwards. Another thing you can do is you can get on a treadmill, turn around, keep the treadmill off, and then walk backwards and spin the tire the other way. Mm, mm. That's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that, but... The other exercises I would, because I used to have a bunch of knee issues growing up because I, I never stretch. I never worked on my knees at all. And I had Osgood Schlater disease, which is when you get like the knob in front of your knee, right? Due to a yeah. lack of stretching. Um, yeah. So I just, I, I dealt with things when I was doing lacrosse and, and basketball kind of all time that I, I never thought about. Yeah, man. Go on Instagram, start looking at this guy, do a couple exercises, I think the reason that he's gotten so popular is be- is one because of like the person he is. Like when you watch the video, you'll get it. I think there's a level of seriousness that I really appreciate with him where he's like, "Hey man, being in pain sucks. I want you to be able to be like your best athletic self so you can go and play your sport." And like I just really appreciate the intensity that he brings. Like I feel like he's given me a different intensity in my own life. And the shit that he does just works, bro. Like go ask anybody that does it. Like it's working for them. Mm. Mm. Okay. I'll, I'll, this is a powerful testimonial you got right here. I also think that energy thing is big. Like I think the people who I actually follow online, right? Gary Vaynerchuk and the other people I look at, you really do feed off of that energy. It gives, gives you like an immediate push. Absolutely. I like it. I like it. The right, man, let's last up with thing. The last topic. 
Yes, sir. The uh, last thing we have here is very, very interesting to me. I think this is terrifying, though, but I find it very interesting. So you're not on TikTok. Um, The people who are on TikTok have probably heard about – well, actually, let me clarify that. The people who are within the New York area in TikTok have probably heard about this. So last week – Bing (laughs) bong. You know, the Knicks are are ass. So last week, right, there was this woman who made a TikTok about going on a date with a 6'4 individual with a mustache who worked at West Elm, right? That TikTok got a lot of attention, right? There was another TikTok that came out about someone who was tall that had a mustache from West Elm that they also hooked up with and had a bad experience, right? There was another TikTok that popped up, like essentially... Five, six, seven of these TikToks were made and people figured out that they were all talking about the same individual who apparently would do things like being over the top in his romantic messages and sending people a bunch of like really intense things um, to like he would hook up with like two people on the same day. Um, he would send like dick pics. Like he was, he was apparently like a, that sort of individual. And these women would see that they were, Oh, he also sent the women the exact same Spotify playlist as like his hook. Right. <laughs> so these TikToks the kept day. on <laughs> the, uh, the TikToks, you at least have to change titles or something. The, the TikToks kept on popping up and people were like, Oh, we're talking about the same person, right? Like this is the West Elm Caleb. We're all talking about the same individual. So what happened that popped up, that became viral and got a lot of attention. And then what happened after that is they fully shared information about this person, fully doxed him. They had where he worked. They had full name. They had phone number. They had his address. Like they shared all of that information online to these thousands of people who were kind of creating this campaign to get him like retribution for what he's been doing to, to these, uh, to these women. And apparently there was, uh, there are other companies too, who kind of picked it up as like a, as like a marketing ploy. I think there was one dating app who said like, trying to avoid that West Elm Caleb or whatever it was, right? So people were using this as like a marketing thing. I saw this and this made me very, very scared. Very, very scared. I think when it comes to dating or even being social in certain areas, like the more that we're in this like super, there's not like an inherent respect for people's privacy. So when things like this pop up, you immediately can blast out to hundreds of people when things go viral about information about people. And it just makes me, I mean kind of dating apps are the the main way that people are finding people and you just think of like any text that you could be sending in any moment could be screenshot and you can become the biggest thing that that night you can become the the main character for a day so i saw this it made me very scared and i was just shocked about this entire debacle does it is it um like but would you still feel the same fear if you'd potentially met someone in person like like is it about the dating apps does that add an element to it i think it's it's not even the dating apps is a is a part of it i think the thing that is more scary for me is the fact that people are able to amplify this so quickly and there's no respect for privacy um Mm -hmm. i think there are a lot of advantage when when truly heinous acts are done and truly despicable things are done. There, I, I think it is actually a very potent skill to film something, to spread something, to give information like that sort of thing. Is I, I when when like actual things are, are that are negative are done, but kind of when the bar kind of gets a little in in that middle area where nothing really. This is just kind of like a jerk of a dude. There's nothing kind of illegal or or 
uh, harassment of any sort here, that you kind of treat it the same way as if something very negative was done. And then the power of the internet is behind you trying to spread information about a certain individual. So that like the, the privacy part and the coordinated attack part is something that really, really freaks me out. Um, and the, the idea of like the dating apps being used as a tool, like, do you, do you ever think about this as a, at all when you're on the apps kind of doing things that you could be, your name could go out there or, or like information about yourself could be spread? Well, definitely. Like there's always the fear that something is going to be screenshotted and taken out of context and like get back to your job. Like, yeah, that, like that stuff kind of run through my, runs through my brain. I think. With with something like this, I think if you dock someone, that should be punishable. Like mm. I think that's I like I think we need to get to that place. Either one of two things will happen, right? In my opinion, doxing someone is just never okay because you just don't understand what some people will do. Like let's let's hope that this person, even though he sounds like an asshole, is not having people showing up at his home. Like that's actually mm. really ridiculous. That that's never okay. One of two things will happen. Either doxing will truly become a punishable crime or two, everything's just going to become like Balaji says, pseudonymous. Like people are just going to start using social networks without their government names. That's the only solution to this. That was what was going through my head. Like the idea of separating your identity from any online, like evidence of yourself that you, you leave. Um, and I think that is more. I could see that happening before I could see this becoming like an offense of any sort because it wasn't it wasn't like individuals doing this it was like this massive kind of decentralized coordinated attack on this individual that is it's just terrifying man it's 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 so scary the the people have a lot of time man and the barometer for what they view as criminal offenses is just so much very very much uh, changed people have a lot of time and it's also really fun to shit on people. One of the things that I really did not like about TikTok, I felt like I was getting sucked into this war of like men versus women. Um, mm. Like there's a lot of content on TikTok that just describe like women describing like, um, like horrible dates that they've gone on, but then also like men describing horrible dates that they've gone on with women. And in general, just like women talking shit about the men they date, men talking shit about the women they date and like just getting sucked into different perspectives. One of the things that I didn't like about being on TikTok is sometimes I felt like I was like, it, I, I was like consuming all of this stuff that was giving me fuel to have all of these just like hypothetical conversations about like, <laughs> like and it was just, it was just very, it, it was just ugly. There was like a nastiness that I like really didn't like. And this seems to be like an extension of that. The way that all of these people, like I'm even looking up on Vogue, like uh, some of the TikToks here, like people are talking about, we need to defeat Caleb, you know, like Caleb mm -hmm. becomes like a meme, like Karen, you know, like it's just not, mm -hmm. it's not good. That's hilarious. I think, I think a lot of the, actually I, I've made a concerted effort for this not to be true. Like I stopped using TikTok and all that, but I think there are a lot of times you're scrolling through Twitter or something and you're just kind of getting a bunch of fodder for conversations you will never have like debates you will ha! you will never ever have <laughs> you, you took the words right out of my mouth that is exactly <laughs> what i mean yeah yeah but i i saw this it shocked me i had to get your opinion and i that's that's kind of the the situation now that's that's the world we live in but like so like one theme that's coming out of this pod and maybe it's just because i i keep saying it but like 
like I think a lot of people don't see a lot of value in crypto. I think that some of these things that we just discussed, like pseudonymity, um, you know, uh, uh, censoring content. I think a lot of the problems with social media are going to lead to the adoption of a lot of crypto platforms because it, it, it solves some of these issues in ways that uh, the current media platforms can't solve them. Yeah, I just think it's gonna. There, there's a bit of a mental hurdle where people go from you have been using these ad-based uh, platforms for a very long time that had no clear financial incentive and nothing to do. You you go on, post your content, whatever. And then I think when people think of crypto, there's just such a financial incentive kind of posted to it that there's just a kind mm. of a mental switch that happens in those behaviors. Um, but no, I, I agree. I mean, the this pseudonymous like idea you told me about, I think like two, three years ago, has still blown my, the idea that you could work with individuals at your job and still know nothing about them and kind of work with them every day. You have Zoom, they have a different identity they show you, a different name they show you, no one's cameras are on, you work with this person mm -hmm. for a long time and there are no actual connections there. It's a very interesting idea. It And, and it, it solves two problems, right? Like, you know, you, you, you like, let's say, like, honestly, I would be afraid to like go to work and like publicly say that, like, I don't hate Joe Rogan, hmm. you know, because but in 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 the reason that I, I feel like the 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 more we I feel like COVID is just a test bed. I think there will be other things that we will replace with COVID that will be as divisive as COVID is today. And like people just cut people off for being on one side of the spectrum or another. The only way that we're going to be able to successfully like work together or be in social networks together is if it's pseudonymous and you just can't link opinions back to government names, unfortunately. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Cause you either have two, you either have two internets or you have one big internet with like a lot of, you know, small pieces that is pseudonymous. Yeah. Yeah. With that said, though, I still don't believe in I don't, cancel culture. I think is very stupid to me. I don't think it, it, it. I don't think people have the attention spans for cancel culture to be a real thing. So whenever people bring up the idea of that, like it bothers me. But whatever. Well, by that, do you mean that you think that people can't be canceled because people just get over it quickly? I think I do not have evidence of cancellations that I could kind of point to as something that I have really like, I, I think for there to be a cancellation, they have to, there has to be like a, a large financial thing that they didn't gain. Or like, I think a lot of when people say cancellation, it's that kind of 24 hour news cycle where people are talking about this. And then after yeah. that, there is no actual uh, outcome or no actual effect of what has gone down. And I just, it's, it's such an overuse. Like people, comedians love using it and venture yeah. capitalists love using it. And it's just, I, I like these people theoretically are pretty intelligent. So we could talk about different things. Like that's, that's kind right. of how I see that. Right. You didn't, you didn't get canceled, Joe. People just hate you now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> precisely. Precisely. Cool, man. Well, let's wrap up. I know you got shit to do. I got a steak to cook. This was a good pod. <laughs> Episode two. <laughs> Only get better every EP. What are your recommendations though? I need something. Any piece of content that I should get on right now. Oh, Jay Cole and Benny the Butcher just dropped a new song. I heard, but I haven't heard it yet. It's it's good. Oh, it's good. I like, okay. I like, I like the J Cole. Like, I love J Cole, obviously, but he like he like only raps with people he like really respects. Like, mm. 
he, like he never will. He, like it's it's very clear he's never getting on a feature because he needs the money. He's only hopping on a feature because he really like actually thinks that this rapper is good. Is is that a subtweet to someone, or is that are, are there undertones <laughs> there? I think it's a subtweet to like not not anyone in particular, but just to like most people. Like the thing I like about J Cole is like he's so skilled. And he's so at the top of that game up there with like Kendrick and then maybe Drake is also in that bucket that it's just not commercial. Like he can really yeah. just do whatever he wants. And he just kind of, he just showcases how good he is all the time. I don't know. Everything he does, it feels pure, I guess. Mm-hmm. I just really respect his investment in up and coming, like the creating a platform for like JID and like even putting the content online and stuff. Like he is just really, really invested in up and coming artists that I, I really respect. I think all the artists that I really respect have made a concerted effort to invest in up and coming people that they feel like have potential. And I think J Cole is one of the best examples of that. Yeah. I'm gonna man. Listen to this all, all my, all my dogs are feeding themselves. Mm. That was, that was from the latest album. And that made me think about Joe Budden. Ooh, mm. I got. Mm. Oh, <laughs> Joe Budden is the kind of person that wants everyone to depend on him. Yes, and that and that is why him, Rory, and Maul broke up because he didn't want them to have the same information that he had because then they wouldn't depend on him as much. J. Cole is the kind of person that wants all of his people in his label to be able to completely take care of themselves without his help. Yes, that's the yes. difference. On the night I was born, the rain was pouring, God was crying, lightning struck, power outage, sparks was flying, the real ones here, the young boy that walked with lions around the outlines of chalk where the corpse is lying, of course I'm trying, the revive a sport that's dying, but the guns and the drug bars that y'all are lying, got these nerves thinking that you niggas hard as iron, but that just mean I ain't as comfortable as y'all with lying, stretching the truth, no I never stress in the book. They feel the pressure me, I feel like I just left them a suits Effortless, how I'm skating on these records is proof I put your favorite rapper neck in the noose Never letting them loose Cold world, the heater blast to your speaker Heater last of Mohicans, no weakness last in my sneakers Nigga want me on the song, he gon' see the wrath of the reaper I'm probably gon' go to hell if Jesus asked for a feature I'm higher than niggas, it don't need a bag full of reefer Some see the glass is empty, I see a glass full of ether Collecting his bread and mash like he a Catholic preacher Just to count a nigga cash, you might need a calculus teacher Eureka! Einstein on the brink of the theory of relativity Really no MC equal Feel me coping be lethal Crip like an old MTV show uh, On God the best rapper alive Headshot Now go and ask the best rappers that died They tell you he never lied nigga. Yeah. Tenor talk